the Resident Advisor Exchange. Normally for these, um, we'd go chronologically through someone's career, but I'm not even sure that's possible in the time we have with the man uh, here. Um, <laughs> it's an honour to have Stephen Malinda in the Resident Advisor studio. And I honestly don't know where to start with a, with a career like yours, Stephen. I mean, yeah. what, what, what are you doing now? Let's start with the present. What am I doing now? Um, what am I do- yeah, that's quite a good idea. We can sort of like deconstruct the whole thing and go backwards um right now well i've just i've just finished uh obviously i released the the umdada the the album i did under my own name so uh solo album um i've been i've written kind of a whole virtually another albums with the stuff since then because i'm doing i'm kind of playing live with that a little bit as well but it's just me so uh i decided i wanted to kind of keep it a bit raw so i wrote pretty much another album of stuff in a similar kind of vibe just for live. So I've got a few dates doing that. Um, and aside f- uh, from my own stuff, I've got, um, we've got the Wrangler album out, which is out in February because we, we signed to Bella Union. We launched the album in November with the sort of an Anthropocene, the v- just a video. And then um, we started kind of rolling that out. And that's you and Phil from Tongue. That's me and Phil from Tongue and Benj from, uh, obviously, Mimi Tune. I mean, he, it's Benj's studio we did it in. Um, and you know, Benj works with, uh, you know, does the math, does the math with John Fox. And all three of us work with John Grant and do the creep show, do creep show. So, and that's the other thing. We're probably writing new stuff in the new year for creep show because I think we're doing some, I think we're doing festival things in the summer. So there's more creep show coming And out, that's so. where the Bella Union connection comes with John. Yeah. Yeah, that's where it came. That's where it came from. I mean, it does, but at the same time, I've known Simon for for years as well because I was good friends with the Cocktoes. So um, Simon, I, Simon and I knew each other really well. So it was kind of an easy fit. And Simon heard the Wrangler album, and went, I, you know, I'd love to bring it out. So yeah, there's history there, but it's the, you know the connection more recently was through John. Yeah, and over the past few years, you've also had ongoing collaboration with Steve Cobby. Yep. Yeah, um, Cobby and I, ha- we should get back together and do stuff. I, th- I think distance is uh, the tyranny of distance a little bit because Steve's up in Hull, which sounds terrible, so it's a long way away, but if I go up, it's kind of a block of time and I'm travelling to Cornwall a bit. So we sort of we sort of put that on ice for a little bit, but I'm hoping some point to get back and do do some more Cobby and Malinder stuff. We had a 12 a couple of years ago and that was the last thing we had, so I'm hoping we can revive that at some point as well. So, yeah. And I've got my... Um, I've got my original solo album, Power, from many years ago uh, being reissued. It's coming out on double vinyl. So I'm doing that with Jason Am, who obviously is known for I Dream of Wires and Solvent and all the analogue stuff. So he's bringing it out on his label. So that's kind of a quick snapshot of the next couple of months. <laughs> and we got gigs with Wrangler as well as my own gigs. So, yeah. <laughs> that's a fair bit to be going on with. And, I mean, it, these, are, these are more than just kind of you know, being busy with collaborations because all of these people are fairly radically networked in their own right. Um, For anyone who doesn't know Tung, for example, they they were kind of, you know, right at the heart of the Folktronica thing in the early 2000s. And around that time, I did a piece, I remember doing a piece for Word magazine where I drew a family tree. I started with The Accidental, which was a side project from Tung, and tried to draw all these connections from the the various different members Mm. and managed to fill this whole double spread of the entire music industry. Effectively, it was only two degrees of separation from Tung to, like, Kylie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And when we played the Albert Hall, when Wrangle played the Albert Hall with John Grant, Kylie was the guest there. So there was actually one degree of separation from that so there you uh, go yeah and 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 Tung and Benj were always kind of working in parallel they started in the same studios and um but this is how you've always worked really like Cabaret Voltaire was never a conventional band from the beginning no, I mean, I don't think we set out to be a band. It wasn't the idea. It was the, the idea was. I think we were we were all kind of creative people, and sound was the, the medium that we worked in. I mean, we were all kind of into art. Rich went to art college. Um, Chris and I were really into it, and that hence the the name resonated with picking the name Cabaret Voltaire because there was that wider interest in all all kind of uh, kind of art forms, and that you know for various reasons resonated, and it, it became the name. But we were interested in just more sound experimentation we 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 didn't want to be a band because we couldn't be a band because we 
we weren't musicians. We hadn't grown up in, in that kind of way. We'd grown up sort of wanting to play around with electronics and tape recorders and, and processes and things like that. Very much inspired by, in the first instance, by, you know, Brian Eno and, and Eno's role in Roxy. We were, that was kind of the little spark, I think, the catalyst. We were... We were all, you know, it was three. It was one of those things where, you know, we wanted to be Roxy in the sense that we all, but we all wanted to be Eno. Everybody wanted to be Eno. So it was a band full of Enos, really. So no one wanted to go, oh, we'll do this. But at the same time, you know, the idea of using conventional instruments was the idea of processing them and making them part of more of an art thing. So it was like experimental in, it, in its first instance, but then it started to pick up some of the sort of tropes of bands and drum, a drum, the drum machine was the big kind of change for us because it gave, all of a sudden, without having to, <laughs> we never wanted a drummer because we were working in a loft, or a space smaller than the studio we're in now. And so we couldn't, you know, it wasn't practical. Three people in that room messing around with tape recorders was enough, but a drum machine sort of changed the world for us, really, in the sense it gave us a bit of some kind of st structure and backbeat and backbone to what we were doing. And that sort of pushed it along a little bit. So, But we were never really a band. And all, all the way through, and I mean, you know, it, it doesn't take a musicologist to see continuity from, from then until now and for, you know, the m multiple collaborations and constant experimentation with, with whatever technology is available and, you know, talking about modernist art movements, you know, you're still talking about Dada and all of those things. But, you know, you, you reached a point where it was pop music, by the mid '80s, for example, um, did you at the beginning have a sense of separation between high and low, or pop and experimental? No, I mean uh, that's the thing. I mean, I, I mean, I talked about where we saw ourselves and what we wanted to do in terms of creating, but our history was in you know in in you know. Pop, popular music in its broadest term. I mean, Richard and I were, were both sort of soul boys back in the late 60s, early 70s. That's how we first met when we were really young, to, you know, sort of 14 years old, Richard and I first met. And we were, you know, we went to soul clubs. We went to see, you know, all the Motown bands and all that. So, so would this we, be what we know as the Northern Soul scene? No, or? but that's what, there's always a mix up between Northern Soul. It's really, because Northern Soul only really happened around the late 70s. In the, I mean, just a bit of kind of context for that was I mean Northern Soul was around the same time as punk and disco mm -hmm. what it well, Northern Soul emerged from the, from the 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 thing that uh, as soul music morphed into funk a lot of people were purists and they missed that soul thing and so they sought out all these obscure and often much more sort of harder tougher sort of obscure mm -hmm. sort of seven inches and that became the soul movement but it was Northern Soul was more of a response to funk and disco, which, you know, the purists felt had softened the edges of that kind of sound and that movement. So we ha I had a lot of friends who, from that early soul day, who, who followed it into Northern Soul, were quite a lot of friends who did that. But oddly enough, we moved into a path, probably because we were into, you know, got discovered the Velvets and Roxy and you know, really into Bowie and things like that. So we we followed a path into into that way, and um, so punk was the thing. So not Northern Soul as such. I mean, okay. like I say, I've got Northern Soul friends, but that was later than the Soul period. We're we're old school. I mean, I'm talking <laughs> I'm talking sort of you know going to see Stevie Wonder when I, he, I think he was only seventeen when years old. He was old. little Stevie. Yeah, Wonder. when he was almost when he's little Stevie Wonder on those really early days. So wow. this is really you know this this is this is the kind of period when we what was what was your it. identity? Did you have a sense of identity around that? I mean, did you see it? as a scene or was it just that's the music we like and that's what we go and see no it was a scene I mean uh, I mean there was I'm still friends I'm still friends with some of those people from that early soul days obviously Richard and I were, were kind of part of that but also a guy called Mike Ward who is in Floyd Joy and still makes tons of music he writes with uh, Crooked Man he's Parrot's kind of music writer so but but yeah Wardy and I still work together and Wardy's still really active And but we came from a little kind of we were only really young 14 15 years old and it was sort of um, we used to sneak into clubs and and sort of uh, overage clubs and you know pretend we were eighteen. We didn't have to. It was great. You didn't have to have ID in those days. No one wears, wears your ID. It was like no one carried ID. So if you looked tall enough and you kept a little bit of a moustache on you, you, know, you could get in. You know. So, but it was we were very much part of the same. We were into that. Um, was it connected to mod? I mean, what, what we how, came how were you the, dressing yeah, and we, stuff? Yeah, we came. We, yeah, we were part of that. I mean, we we kind of. 
we linked in that. We, I mean, we used to get the matches. We were skinheads as such, but not in the way skinheads had become in, in the kind of stereotype. It wasn't that. It was it, we emerged from that kind of mod suede head vibe. So we had mohair suits and, you know, we had, you know, crombies and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we'd wear royals or bar, people who know this scene would know this, you know, bar, you know, barter shoes and, you know, sort of two-tone and, you know, Ben Sherman button-downs and Brutus button-downs. You know, we used to go, sh- used to go shoplifting, Nick, and all that stuff. That's, I've still got mates who used to go shoplifting with when I was a kid in those days. So, you know, um, so yeah, it, we, we were part of a little, t- it was a town scene, you know, we were young, so we'd spend all our time in the, you know, in the sort of pinball rooms and 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 then sort of, you know, try and sneak in clubs at, on odd nights to, to, to listen to sort of soul music. I was Sheffield, it was, that was the music, you know, that people were listening to. And speed was the drug. We did. Speed was something that, strangely enough, no, not for, well. It was, but speed became the drug more around the punk period and around, as you're saying, and Northern, and Soul, Northern yeah. Soul, which is an interesting kind of bit of cultural history because we. I lost a few friends uh, around that time. Ones who'd kept that Northern Soul path on, and you know, you know. Uh, I, I mean, I have to say, you know, Judd from Judd from Clock DVA was a Northern. He was bass player in in, in Clock DVA and. Another friend, a really good friend, Russell Davey, who was a, a big person in that scene. I mean, they died because speed was the drug around that Northern Soul period. But then when that sort of tailed off, a lot of people got into heroin. Mm-hmm. And we lost friends through, uh, you know, through through overdoses. So speed was a different thing when it was connected to soul. But we, we you know, we got into, it, but around the same period, but we were into punk. So it was a different scene. So it wasn't all nighters as much for us. But yeah, it was part of that, yeah. But what, so what you were doing was essentially what we would recognise as club culture. It was like, you know, it was your identity. It was where you kind of forged your, your social links and everything. Oh, completely. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think probably we moved away from it. Punk was the big sort of change. Not that we were specifically punk, but it changed the culture a little bit. And it moved it away from sort of that club, solely kind of disco-y thing and moved it more into live performance, you know, people gigging, things like that. But our roots were originally in that. That's why, it made, you know, it was we slipped back into that. And and also part of it obviously never left us. And that's why I knew you were talking about later we moved into more, you know, not pop music, but certainly more club music. That's because electro made complete sense to us, you know. When people in New York were starting to mess around with drum machines and sequences and, you know, that kind of stuff, then that made complete sense to us because we saw we could see our direct line from the old soul kind of period when we were into that. So we never really lost it. But punk was the thing that opened and changed a lot of things for so many people. We were making electronic music in that period, but it gave us opportunities to do some of the things we were doing at that time and labels, you know, Rough Trade, Factory Records, all those things started. So, yeah, it was, it was, there was a connection with all that. And the other big thread that was running through, through British pop culture at the time when you first started out was psychedelia. I mean, I'm guessing as skinheads, you weren't that well predisposed to hippies. No, well, it's fun. when I was at school, there was sort of, there were two factions and I was in the incredibly small faction when I was like 13 years old, you know, because the the shift in school when I was at school was to, you know, the blue, they were called blues boys originally. There was that, it, the hippie stuff was tended to be more, more of a middle class thing. I mean, there were kids at school who were into soft machine and, and and what have you but um and some of the americana that was probably coming out but strangely enough a lot of put up but the the other cult the, the other culture that exists along that along that was the origins of heavy metal so it was more deep purple that people were into and so we we were the counter to that and we were we were the soul boys in that early period yeah um i mean sheffield never quite had the the embrace of psychedelia in the way that say liverpool did no. or Manchester, but the music that you started making when you did those tape experiments, and and you know, I mean, maybe you can say the same for Throbbing Gristle, um, who were in parallel around the same time, was mind bending. <laughs> yeah, I think there was a, I, th- I think, I mean, I think there was a, there was a kind of desire and an intention to sort of really challenge people and warp people, warp and change people's perceptions, but. Perhaps, as you know, I've alluded to, perhaps there was a grittier, northern, more kind of working class notion to where we came from. You know, the hippie, the hippie thing always, always feels rather middle class and cheese clothy for me. But so we, 
we came from the idea of psychedelia is a part of it. You know, we were particularly visually as well. We picked the, even if the sounds that we were doing weren't, you know, the guitar type of psychedelia, visually it certainly was. You know, there was certainly, certainly a feel for that. You know, we were massively into the idea of, you know, when Andy Warhol did the exploding plastic inevitable. So that idea of really dark sort of psychedelia, I think we tend to think of psychedelia as rather sort of sunshiny, whereas there was a much darker side to it. And we were into that. And another band, strange one band that strangely enough that we kind of related to around that time, and I know Leiden did, was we used to go and see we used to go and see Hawkwind. But it was the visuals from Hawkwind that we were into because the, the guy was called Liquid Len. And he used to do these amazing sort of like films. So that was the thing that, you know, we were into sort of the more art aspects of it. And so the visuals and, and the projections were the thing that we found fascinating, really. So we kind of, that was the bit of psychedelia that we picked up on. I think, I think um, Hawkwind, there, there's a bit of retroactive appreciation of them now. It's, it's starting to happen and you'll get people like the Norwegian space disco DJs doing Hawkwind edits and stuff now. Yeah. Um, but them and also Gong in the Steve Hillage period especially, I sometimes think that they should be appreciated as our stooges or our... Our, our, our can well they were, they were funnily enough I mean we did I did see we, you know Richard and I used to travel to gigs and we did see can a couple of times in that in that sort of period but also we did see gong <laughs> it actually put me off festivals probably for, for the rest of my life but we went down Kirky and I and a couple of other mates went down in a van with blacked out windows and went down to the Windsor Free Festival in about 1974 or something like that because it was a free festival and Gong were playing and we were kind of fascinated by Gong. I think what it was, I've got a funny feeling they might have had a VCS3. We were quite sort of like specific in our interest in things. So if a band had a VCS3, we were like, well, we're going to go and check them out. And I think Gong sort of touched on that sort of interesting bits. I remember going down this to see This is one them. of the synthesizers that would make the... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, well. you know, Tangerine Dream. I'm going to see Tangerine Dream. We were like, don't really like this hippie stuff, but the gear, the, the gear's good and the sounds are all right. They're just not using it properly, you know. But So, yeah, we did actually go and see, see Gong, you know. There's a great there's a great Lester Bangs piece about Tangerine Dream where he's just like, I think he just does a couple of Valium and goes and sees Tangerine Dream and he's just really interested in the lights on their equipment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, there was that connection to German music. I mean, that was the thing probably we... Oddly enough, we were in the early days. We were drawn to the sort of we were drawn to the you know the black urban music of America, of Detroit and Philly, and you know whatever. But the other counterpoint to that was being interested in the German stuff. So we were interested in early craft work and going to see them in the very early days of them and and can. So there was a they all wanted to be James Brown. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, and the Caps did as well. I mean, there was that thing where. We it was our weird and messed up, you know. There was so, we never lost that element of funk in what we did, even though it's never really apparent. But because it's so lo-fi and messed up and unstructured, but we know we always had that kind of rhythmic kind of part of what we did, and so we never lost it. And you know, I think that was Can's appeal. They 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 sort of mutated some of that American funk. I mean, Jackie Leaves it was like for me was a god, you know, and Holger and all that. The, the rhythm section was fu- you know fundamental to me for for Can. So we saw that part of it as well. Yeah. And did you see yourselves as forging an artistic movement? Did you actually kind of think, right, we are we are building something new here? No, I don't think so. I think we thought we were, I think we just thought we were sort of the fly in the ointment, to be quite honest. I think we just thought, our main role was to be an irritant. I think that, you know, there's only certain ways you can get attention and sometimes being rather brattish about it. And I think we were always brattish about it. I think the, the thing was we wanted, if we wanted anything, we wanted notoriety, not fame and success. We wanted just that notoriety. Everybody wants to have some recognition and we've probably figured our our way of recognition was in it as in the Dada thing and as in sort of Ken Kesey's pranksters or you know obviously Fluxus there was that idea of if you annoy people you're going to get some recognition we're not going to we're not going to get people aren't going to notice us for our musicianship or proficiency or songwriting because we can't do that but 
we were doing we thought we were doing something very different with the idea of drawing attention to different things really and then punk came along and, and that then became punk came along <laughs> and that, yeah there was a there was, was a quite the cult. thing yeah yeah that was it it was everybody did it yeah but we didn't do it with guitars and drums that was where punk always let us down in this we felt it was like well yeah all right you know your attitude and you know everything that punk stands for is really good but you're still playing bass guitar drums you know it's still within a rock format really which worked in certain occasions but in other occasions it was like we never saw ourselves connected with that at all did you what about what became known as industrial did you feel any kinship when you know you started becoming aware of coom and throbbing gristle and these people um yeah i mean i mean i think richard and i and you know and chris as well would have always said that industry was something that was particularly you know for throbbing gristle and that that became a wider kind of banner i think for bands so it because of TG invented it, you know, it was them industrial records and industrial, you know, sounds for industrial people, and they captured that completely. But I think then people joined those dots towards us. So we were quite happy to have the connection, but in terms of the name, we because also there was a bit where it felt like it was an in joke a little bit with 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 TG. It was like not in a bad way, but it was like oh, we've actually you know we've actually created something, and people can now go. It's called that. And um, you know, so Genesis was nothing if not a good marketer. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. So he knew how to do that. So you know, and we 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 paid our respects. I think obviously the thing sort of not diluted but mutated a little bit when it got a lot broader, and then all the bands started coming along, and every, they all got shoved into the the industrial sort of thing. And we probably we didn't particularly feel not we we weren't against it. We didn't feel that kind of affinity. We felt a massive affinity with with TG uh, and those guys because we felt as though we, we were on a similar path and massive respect to them as well but we probably didn't feel as connected or feel you know as though we had had any, any as much in common with some of the other bands like Skinny Puppy or whatever or the brand really perhaps the brand it became convenient but music is always conveniently sort of categorised and you just accept that really yeah I mean when it became Skinny Puppy and Frontline Assembly and yeah. all, the, all of those kind of things it, and then it was, it was like a, well it's a genre, and that's possibly, and that is probably, even though we weren't, we weren't doing it that consciously. But that's why we moved back into electro because we were like, okay, well, you, we don't want to be sort of corralled into this sort of way. This is going, so uh, you know, we, you know, I've got no problem with Front Four Two Four, Four Two Four Two, and, and all those bands. But we were like, no, we want to. We actually, it's interesting what's happening with on the other side of America. What's happening with the funk and with the electro? So. That that's when we probably shifted. It was partly to probably distance ourselves a little bit from this industrial thing. It was a little bit too convenient for us because we were a band from Sheffield. It's like, oh, you're industrial. You come from an industrial city. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. were like, no, we actually we're, we're there's more to us than that. And I think that's probably why we sort of shifted a little bit towards that and picked up some of those traits a little. But uh, talking of Sheffield itself, I mean, around that time, did you feel part, because obviously what became Human League and Heaven 17 and Chack and all of these kind of things were starting to emerge and all of them in some regard had synthesizers, some element of funk, hmm. um, some element of conceptualism and dressing up and all the rest of it. Did you feel part of that? Yeah, I think, and that was a much looser association, I think. It, people weren't branding that quite as much because, you know, from that period, as well as the, having a massive connection with, you know, the Sheffield bands with, you know, with Clock DVA and the, the League and then, you know, Martin making, you know, starting Heaven 17. We had that connection, we had that affinity and we were, you know, we were friends and we were part of that Sheffield sound. I mean, Chuck, we released Chuck's first record, they were on double version. So um, we, you know, I'm still connected with those guys, you know, with Mark from from Chuck, who's obviously Maloko now. So we were connected with that. But the other bit of it as well in that history was, you know, I think you have to recognise what the pop group were doing what Gareth and and what Mark were doing 
and that had an impact. They had an impact on clock DVA really massively, the, and the, and also on the ratios. So there was that sort of darker, edgy sort of funk that was coming out. You know, another band at that time, obviously, Manicured Noise. So there, there was this sort of like funk thing that was coming out of that period, and I think that was that was something that we could also recognise. But it wasn't it wasn't sort of tied up in a bow as much as the industrial thing. So it was kind of nice to have bits of those things things in there. Yeah, I think I think the legacy of the pop group and Rip Rig and Panic between yeah. them is going to only be more and more appreciated as time goes on. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the stuff Gareth started doing later with Sean, Sean Oliver, with God and Rip Rig and all those things. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there was... The, so the Bristol thing was kind of part of it a little bit as well. And also some of the, you know, the stuff that was coming out of, uh, you know, out of New York a little bit as well. So that was kind of part of that thing. I think we, I think this, we felt, you don't feel smart, but you kind of go that, you know, that's where it's really starting to get interesting. And the rhythmic side of it was very interesting. That's always part of, that's always the part that's fascinated me. So, yeah, that was drawn, we were drawn to that. And then expanding out of that, you you have what's broadly called post-punk, which in, in, incorporates everything from New Order to Public Image to um, Scritti Politti. You know, was, was again, was there a sense of kinship? Did you kind of feel, all right, there's something going on that we are part of on a national scale. Yeah, and also I think by, by that this time we'd sort of signed to some bizarre, and so we were not only the kinship was a reality as well. You know, we were actually on the same label as some of these these people, and also I kind of I split my time between London and, and, and Sheffield at that time, so we were. We're close friends with those. It's funny actually coming up. I was coming up from Brighton on the train this morning when I was getting a coffee. The people in the coffee stall at the front of the station were playing "Rip It Up and Start Again" and a Blumange track, and I was thinking, "Wow, wow, the last thirty years have never happened." You know, it was really funny, and they, they were singing along. And I was thinking, "Wow, I really, you know." And I knew those people obviously knew Edwin and and, and knew, you know knew Zeke as well. So Zeke's still kicking around from Orange Juice. So there was a, there was a friendship, and there was a you know there was a camaraderie. I think we. Saw and I think we have to. I think you have to remember that. I think pop music, in some ways, has been tainted by, um, in the particularly in the last sort of 20, 30, 20 odd years of, of the Simon Cowlisms of and uh, Stock Aitken and Watermans of that of that kind of thing. But there was something. There was not. There was some things w that were happening within within popular music that were really good. And you know, and Public Image were part of that as well, just as much as you know, Orange Juice were part of it. So it didn't feel as though you could make music that you felt was reaching out and being accessible without losing all, every element that you'd had before. So you could keep that edge, that darkness, the tape bits and all that. But, you know, any and any group pushes forward a little bit. So there was, there was interesting popular music at that time that was going on. So, yeah. you know, so it was, it was fine. I mean, so the, we, kind of the, the high golden era, I guess, is 79 to 81 for all of that stuff. It was like the charts were full of incredible exploratory stuff mm. um two times going on you know it was just like felt like a, a real interesting time for cross-fertilization yeah people like dennis bavel was right at the heart of a lot of that you know he yeah. was working with the pop group with ryuchi sakamoto with, yeah and you know, i mean you know. i mean dennis worked with with uh yeah work, and, and worked with edwin as well so there was you know there was there was fascinating all that you know and and Manchester, and obviously we were connected with with Factory, and we obviously New Order, we were close with those guys. So it, it was kind of that, yeah. That at that point, I think you felt like you were sort of probably pushing things out a little bit from the experimental thing it was annoying. You started to go, well, it is you know, it's probably we're making that annoying bit into something that probably is reaching a little bit further by changing a few things in the way we approached it. But I think we certainly felt at that time there was a in that post punk period there was something there was something that allowed you to sort of enjoy it without feeling as though you were compromising your artistic integrity, <laughs> yeah. shall I say. Yeah. <laughs> and we still did the films and we did all the gigs and it was all still really edgy, you know, it still all had an edge to it. We didn't lose any of that. Yeah. Now the really fascinating period for me that I have been learning a lot about recently, so I've been doing the research for this book on sound system culture that I've just done, and so from that era, the people I spoke to were, were youth, Dennis, Bavel, Adrian Sherwood, and what is interesting is that period between, say, 1982, when pop kind of took a turn for the glossy and we landed with what we think of as 80s pop, Duran Duran and U2 and all this kind of stuff, 
dominating. And then 87, 88, when dance culture as we know it kind of exploded and everything that is, leads us to resident advisor and so on. But that period from like 82 to 87 is kind of undocumented. Like Rare Groove was really interesting and these kind of Rare Groove sound systems where people were bringing reggae sound system culture but playing American funk and yep. electro yep. and hip-hop and learning to scratch and all these kind of things together. I mean, what did you feel about club culture and underground culture of that period, that mid-80s period? Well, funny enough, I, did, I, was, I was thinking, just as you were saying it, I was thinking about that because I was spent, obviously I, would, uh, I was living in London still working in Sheffield and still at a house in Sheffield but I was down in London so I experienced both sides of that and that's where Phil that's where Phil and I Phil from Tongue who, who, who's in Wrangler and Creepshow that's where Phil and I that's our roots you know we we were massive London, you know we're really into that kind of funk and loose ends and that electro and weather, all that kind of stuff that brought into a lot of gay music you know gay kind of electro music so we were really into that and I think that was kind of an interesting period there was some some kind of strange things going on in that period so um and, and it was really interesting and obviously you know you mentioned it i mean tackhead and everything like that um and again these were you know adrian we worked with adrian adrian produced um code so we i thought there was some it was nice for us we we're in a position to tap in and connect with some of those things so i i thought it was but yeah we were that's what we were doing i mean i you know, we were going to a lot of those clubs. You know, I used to go out in the White Club on Saturday nights and all this kind of stuff and go to the warehouse parties and fill dirt box and go, used to go to all the dirt box stuff that was going on. So those were the things that we were I mean, they were, were some of the very first London warehouse parties. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pre-even Norman Jay. Oh, yeah. We used to go to Battlebridge Road because I was good friends with Dave Durrell, uh, you know. So we were really connected. We, you know, I was kind of connected with all that scene and those were the parties we used to go to. So particularly in London, I would go, you know, we'd always be at the dirt box sort of that's the original you know for me dirt box is the original rave scene and also it was a nice time to be in london because uh, i know he's a bit of a prior now but uh, you know rightly for some things that happened but ken livingston's london was great you know uh, i mean i remember going to see things like urban sax there just used to be big events you know just mad events going on london was quite a vibey place to be able to sort of connect with at those times and a mutoid waste was going on all these things so you know, there was kind of so I we didn't differentiate. You know, you go to you know you go to sort of Dave Durrell's club at the YMC underneath the YMCA at Tottenham Court Road, and you go to a mutoid waste thing, and you and you go to a dirt box thing in, in those periods. So there was kind of there was a, that there for me are the roots of of you know that kind of London underground scene. I see the connection there with what you know then Danny and Jenny were doing at Shum and so they it existed already if you know what I mean. So this is exactly what's kind of become apparent. It's like you know people think oh everyone took this magic pill and suddenly it was like black and white and gay and straight and all dancing under one roof but it was like it was there in the warehouse parties yeah. and you know I talked to Jumping Jack Frost to grew up as a you know young rude boy in South London, but he was going to the gay clubs and going to high energy nights and listening to disco and, and all the rest of it. And, and, you know, it's only a step forward to rage at heaven with yeah. drag queens and, you know, junglists dancing yeah. next I to mean, each other. I mean, and also, because also, I mean, somewhere like heaven was also a big part of that early scene. I mean, Final Solution used to do their gigs there. We used to go to gigs at heaven. And so, even though it was ostensibly a gay club, there were nights which were very much open to, to people going down. So we, we, you know, we used to go, go to those things and didn't have, you know, we just, going out was going out. And I think... You know, I have to say I'm somebody, I don't do it, you know, I still go out, not as much as I used to, but I, you know, I was, we used to do those things. And then when, and obviously the other side of it was up in Sheffield. So we got Jive Turkey and we got Winnie and Parrot. And so we had all the events that they were doing as, and the nights that they were doing, you know, at the back, at the back of the occasions. And also, you know, down when they used to run the city, you know, the city underneath the city hall ballroom. And, you know, so, you know, and Winnie and Parrot, we used to take Winnie and Parrot on tour with us and they used to DJ for us. We we in that period we we didn't want support acts. We would show a film and have Winnie and Parrot playing. You know that was a, that was just like oh we can't be bothered with somebody turning up and in a, with a drum kit. Now let's show a film and have Winnie and Parrot DJing for us. That was way more fun. So that's a, that's a good night out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean I want to get on to the the sort of longevity of those Sheffield guys in, in a minute, but um, I mean 
you know, the the big looming thing at that point though is Acid House, mm. and um, like, did you immediately gravitate to certain strands of Acid or techno? Because you know, there's stuff that we can hear now in your in your new tracks that have carried all the way through from '89. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be quite honest, the, you know, the, the 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 album that I just did was 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 really wanting to do that. It's sort of I've come through so many different periods of music, and it's really funny. I can't, you can't do everything, and I thought I kind of that period meant a lot to me. You know, the the early Chicago and the early Detroit stuff, and some of the electro stuff that also that had come out in New York. You know, obviously we we were working with John Roby and. And, and and I you know later I got to do do work with Bam with Bam Barter. so we I was drawn to that that kind of that kind of period that period but also you know the Acid House stuff I mean I've still got it somewhere I think I'm I've got my membership for Spectrum I think it's like number forty three or something and you know I was you know I was lucky I didn't go to the very first couple of nights but i went down to you know down to the you know shoom when it was in the in the fitness center in the aerobic center and you know and those nights because i kind of knew all those people i was a bit of you know london stuff so you know i'd go down with rutherford and paul rutherford and wiley and knew all those kind of guys so it was the, the the actual scene was really interesting but i think the musically i was we would i was always drawn to the electronic elements of that so therefore you know the big records were when you know the first time you hear strings of life or the first time you hear you know you know the, you know the acid tracks and those sorts of things and uh, you know marshall jefferson's the truth and all those kinds of things that sort of summed it up because it had that it had a minimalism it had an edge to it it wasn't it was based around machines and technology but it had such a such a groove and such a move to it so i've always been drawn i've always been drawn to that and i think there's also a beautiful simplicity about how that music was made and that's what i was kind of into that's why i captured so it was like i wanted to do that just keep the keep those simplicity that simplicity because that in that period that's what i was massively drawn to really and also the lights and the duration and being packed in a dark space with all these moving bodies i mean did that speak to kind of the early experimental ideas of discombobulation and yeah, kind of getting people out of their minds and yeah completely i mean i, I you know I, and also, there's something nice about, you know, I've got, a, you know, the great accelerant in music has been drugs, and it's often the thing that's never talked about. And I'm, you know, you've got to be careful because I'm not there condoning drugs and, and where drug culture is now and what it's become is scary. But there's, a, there's part of drug culture which is forever inextricably linked to music and particularly club culture and it's always been a catalyst in club culture and it's been part of the enjoyment and fun of it i mean alcohol is has as well but so those things are really important i think you just have to be you know you have to be wary of you know where those things go and the consequences and you know obviously i'm no saint but at the same time you know i think if it's i accept it's always been part of that and i've been part of it as well so you know i've come out the other end if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is it is it is part of it is part of that and part of that is part of drugs is to is to it's, you know, music is always should be experiential it should be something that changes you and, and and changes you you know for the good and brings things out in you so and i think you know always club clubbing was always part of that change in your experience you know and it still is to, is today i talked to some of my students who've just been you know go down to corsica studios and go oh, i've just seen you know just seen some, you know so they they're, they're transformed by it i think club music is all and those spaces in which it happens transform people it should be a kind of transformative experience yeah, and, and it's one of the reasons that, you know, we're still fascinated by the history of these different iterations of it because um, this is part of human society. Mm. Like, you know, as far as we know, cavemen were, like, having raves in their stone circles or, you know, at yeah. least carnivals in which different tribes came together and had commerce and had spirituality and all the, the different things that go on around yeah. a carnival event. So the more we know about the different versions of it, the more we can hopefully come up with other new good ones. Yeah, I mean, and that's it. It's part of the, it's part of, it's part of the human, it's part of human nature to experience the ecstatic. And I don't mean ecstasy as in the drug ecstasy and MDMA. I mean, the fact that there's a connection with people, you know, it explains religion and, 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 and cults and tribalism in some ways. And music is, a, is the, is 
is the more acceptable form as far as I'm concerned, but it does bring that collective experience. For, you know, sport's the same thing. People need a collective share, shared experience as part of their life, not continually. I think it's where it goes wrong and you lose lose sight of what it's for. But I think as humans, we we do need that ecstatic and collective experience. Yeah, I mean... Music the, the, is part of it. The origin of the, the words, the, the Greek ecstasis is stepping outside of yourself. That's literally the meaning of it. So, And then we fight this constant battle between genuine collective experience and some ego monster up behind the decks taking control of it <laughs> and, and becoming, a, you know, breeding new messiahs and... and um, you know, just kind of tyrannical club regimes. <laughs> but did you did you follow club culture as it kind of mutated through techno? Actually, no. The first thing I wanted to ask about the that techno era was: were you aware of a Sheffield clang? Because Winston talks about the the Sheffield clang. And, yeah, yeah. And did you did you want did you kind of feel part of that? Yeah, I mean. I you know the history of that that sort of scene. I mean, it, I mean, originally there was Fon Records, the little record shop, which is actually you know a lot of kind of Adrian stuff and all the on you sound kit was that was that was their kind of scene, music coming out of there. But yeah, then Warp Records and everything, and what Robert was doing, what Robert and Winnie were doing with Forge Masters, and 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 it was and that was you know that was that was also connected to the Fon Studios, the original Fon Studios in the Wicker. And, you know, we used, I used to record down there. We used to meet... That's where I met Cobby, actually. He was... I think Cobby... That's where I met Steve Cobby. He was... He was um he was roadieing for Bomb the Bass and he suddenly turned up and he, he suddenly turned up in the Fon Studios when he was a kid, really young. So, uh, and that, though, that and Western Works, our studio were, were the kind of homes of that. But obviously, Fon later, when which became really the, the source of, of some of that, that whole kind of warp scene, really. And, but yeah, I mean, I was going backwards and forwards to sh between London and Sheffield, but I, I was, I've, Never, I never lost my connection to that, and I was very aware of it. And it was also nice to see that other, like another generation. It was fun, really. It was fun, you know, the, what 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 they were doing, those guys with Robert and Mark doing Fun Force and Winnie and all those guys. So it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that was transformational for me. I was I was sixteen when when Dexterous and LFO and all those tracks came out, and it was just like that. That was the thing that was like, okay, this is this is our our stuff now. This is like our generation's music, whatever. Mm. Um, um, but you know, Winston talks about that that Yorkshire bass sound as as resonating the sounds of the hammers of the steel factories yeah. clanging across the seven hills. Yeah, the, of all the bleep and, stuff and all the you know, which which you know, Para and Richard captured in the Sweet Exorcist stuff was was really good and obviously you know unique unique three and, and LFO and it started to be that. I think it was just a pure sound. I don't think it was. I don't think it was ever sort of. Um, sort of constructed really specifically. I think it was just, it's part of your nature in that, you know, it wasn't contrived, that was the word I was yeah. looking for. It wasn't a contrived thing, but I think there was a, a notion of those sounds that were just pure, and it just kind of seemed to generate its own thing. So, and once it started, that whole bleep thing kind of generated itself, so yeah. And, I mean, that bass, the, the sub-bass of that kind of then resonated straight away. It was sampled on a dozen hardcore records and you would hear the, the bass from LFO and then you could hear it like week by week rolling through into what became Jungle and then all the other forms of rave music. And did you, did you kind of follow the different electronic music scenes as it then, you know, 93, 94 splintered into trance and hard bag and... Yeah, well, I mean... The thing was, I wasn't. I was into music, and I, I we made music, but I didn't DJ. But I used to buy a lot of records. I used to actually, I used to live around the corner from Jazzy M's when he was on Fulham Road. So I used to go down there every week or so and just see what the imports were. But I was kind of quite eclectic in the things I got. So I was, you know, because I love music. So you know, they play something. Oh yeah, I want that. I want that. So I actually was starting to pick up, you know, really as well as sort of. New York kind of garagey stuff, as well as the early sort of bits that, that were coming through of drum and bass, as well as you know, all the bits and pieces starting to come. Probably kind of feeling like I suppose it was the the early Richie Horton stuff that was coming through the new sound of Detroit at that time in that early period. I loved all that stuff as well. So, um, 
I was picking up all those things, but quite eclectic in the sense that some of it would be from, because they were just importing stuff. So I'd buy, I saw no difference between a Chicago record and a Detroit record and a London record because it was like, oh, this is really cool. You know, I liked all that. So that I used to get a lot of records from Jazzy M's as well as Black Market. So I was just listening to it all, but without any... Because I wasn't DJing, I was, it was nice because it wasn't like, oh, well, I have to have that record because it goes with that record. I was like, oh, I just have, like that record, I'll have it. You know, so uh, that's that was, so I was picking up on, you know, I was listening to all of that. And then in the in the sort of mid-90s, I moved to, to Australia and that's when, that's when it became quite interesting for me. <laughs> I mean... I mean, suppose people think I disappeared, but I didn't. It was actually, I was massively connected to that because I, I, I had a radio show, um, a weekly radio show. And Australia very, was very popular for traveling, you know, for acts and DJs, both from America and the UK. And they always used to come in, you know, to have everybody in on my show. So I never missed out on anything. So, you know, I've, I had, you know, Jurassic 5, Grandmaster Flash, Mr. Scruff, Left Field, Ray and Christian, anybody who was in town used to come and do the show with me. So I actually kept, maintained that kind of, maintained that kind of interest. You in had a sort of inside-outside kind of an overview of, of what was happening from, yeah. from outside, I guess. Yeah, and at that point, um, as well as writing and as well as, I mean, I, I, I was a radio producer, I produced, I produced a lot of arts and talk shows as well, but... but it also meant because I got lots of records, and I used to I used to import vinyl for for record stores. I did DJ all the time, and I had quite a lot of residencies. So in that period, I was actually probably more music centric in terms of club culture and electronic stuff because I was DJing a lot and DJing in Melbourne and Sydney is, and everything. So it's it was interesting. I sort of and I promoted as well. So I you know. First gig, first gig I did. What was the first gig? Oh bloody! Oh Derek Delage, wasn't it? I think so. I, yeah, I did. I did a wall of sound night, which was nice because I, I did. The first night was actually. Sorry, I'm digressing here. I'm rambling on. But it's I mean, uh, the first thing I did was um, uh, Rhythm Digital. That was the first night I promoted, actually. So, which was great. <laughs> you know, did you so, ever guess he'd be producing Madonna a few years no, later? No, but I saw him, actually. I mean, I, I, I stayed, you know, we kind of d bumped into each other because I put him on when a, 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 a bigger gig, year, you know, like about four years later. And he'd just done that. And yeah, it was really funny because, yeah, he was going on about that. So, yeah, it was funny. I never expected that, but yeah. Yeah, top man. So yeah, so I stayed connected with lots of kind of music, thing. and I ended. You know, it was really because I was in. People used to say, "Oh, you know, would you DJ for us?" So I used to play with lots of bands and with lots of acts that came through. Just playing the bill to earn some money. So I stayed connected to it. Strangely enough, was there any plan at this point? I mean, you know, did you were you sort of going cabs? Is what is is the main thread to what you do, or were you kind of um, thinking, ah, I need to settle down a bit and do the more academic and the more day job stuff. Or no, I never. I know. I was. I've always been. I've always been quite rubbish at sort of that kind of thing. In, in, I can't. I can't not do that. I mean, I. I mean, I did. I. I mean, I had my own record label over there, and I used to do gigs and, and promote, and I did. But I. It was basically I used to do what I could to maintain my sort of connection and be able to still do music, really. So, um, no, I don't think I've ever settled down. <laughs> I know it feels like it now because it, in all that madness of everything I was doing, I did, I did teach and I did write my PhD and I do sort of teach down at Brighton and teach sound art and digital, you know, down there. So it, it appears as though I've kind of I'm more established or at least I've settled down but I you know I, I still do everything I do I don't think I've ever changed really so do you, do you ever sort of see phases in what you did or was it just a constant flow of all these different things I think I think that there have been phases and I, I and I think also I think it's also how the phases have also been how I've responded to the changes that have happened culturally and musically um, I think, and also growing older, obviously, you, there's certain things you do. I mean, so I think we each have to respond to things as 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 things change. It was like adapting to that particular world and that circumstance. But it's how do it was always how how can I still maintain a creative side of making music 
and doing those things whilst you know putting food on the table and and so there's also so as things change i much as i would love to say i shaped everything in my own world my own world you know the world shaped me as much as anything else so it was great i dj'd when vinyl was king you know and i still dj but it's like i shifted to other things i think as as certain things became a little bit harder you know running a label was great and bringing music out was obviously a lot harder when you know when vinyl and and every cd's go and everything so you have to adapt i couldn't change that world we've gone into a very diff different co kind of world now and so the world as it is is me trying to contextualize what i do in a in very much a digital online streamed world and part of it is massively critiquing it because i don't like all of it mm. but it's also it's a it's my response to that world but still making music as i respond and in whatever way i can but that clearly provides you inspiration. I mean, you've, you've certainly not dried up at any point in terms mm. of actually getting tracks out there. No, I do. I, I, I mean, I love it, and I love all aspects of sound. I, I mean, the nice thing is working at Brighton, which is the the stuff we did, you know, stuff I'm involved in there is much more abstract, and it is much more kind of sound design and much more installation art and gallery stuff and, and, and things like that. So that's nice because... I still do my own stuff, but I'm still open to a much, a much more kind of, um, not avant-garde, but certainly a more interesting and developing way of, of where sound is going. So I kind of, I make music, but I'm also involved in the bigger world of sound as it is. So I find that quite interesting now at the moment. Do you, do you feel like the, the, the formal avenues, as it were, between uh, experimental club culture electronics and the art world are, are more open now. I mean, I talked to the Warp guys recently and, you know, through the 21st century, f through the video directors they work with, through the people like One Tricks Point Never, through all these artists, you know, it's just natural for them to be in the Museum of Modern Art in New York or the mm. Tate Modern or wherever it, it might be. I mean, does it, does it feel like those structures have changed in the last couple of decades, I think I think there's always I think yeah I think it has, but I think it, it, in some ways it, there's always been that connection with contemporary music, and and the, the more kind of I suppose contemporary art world. I think contemporary art has always wanted to recognise music. You know, Kraftwerk have obviously an example of how they that they've incorporated their aesthetic into a into more of an uh, an arts world. But I, I also think. I also think from the other side, I think the interest is also the breadth of what sound means and what can be done with sound. I think there's a, I think there's an, I think sound as a medium is the last area, not last area, but it's the area that's being explored a lot more. And so I think the, the I find it really interesting how, how you know things like sonification and I mean the the the, the guys that I work with you know they create you know they write their own kind of program and do their own stuff so I think there's an interesting fusion of experiment technology is as kind of of has made it made that form of experimentation a lot more interesting and allows it to reach into that world uh, a, a lot more so uh, but uh, without losing some of the sort of not commercial, but at least it's appealed. You know, sounds feels a lot more appealing. I think it's also in part that as, you know, CDs and vinyl and that content thing is eroded. I know people buy records now and that's great. It's really good. But I think it's probably meant that people who want to do things with sound are kind of ch are challenging how they can use that. And so therefore, you know, making multi-speaker events or, you know, how they creatively use Ableton and all those things. So I think it's, I think it's sort of the technology starting to shape how people do it. And it's making it a bit more arty, which is really nice. It is exciting. And I think it actually does feel like a new corner has been turned or is being turned because around the late 90s when um, digital audio workstations and Pro Tools first came in, there was a sense for electronic music of too much possibility and people not really, you know, not having the constraints of one drum machine and one synth. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of people felt that electronic music was losing its way or kind of splurging, losing its identity. Um, but finally now, that kind of extreme sound manipulation technology is accessible enough and yeah. understood enough so that cultures are actually starting to emerge from that now. 
Well, yeah, and, and you know, when you've got people like Steve Goodman doing Code Nine and the Hyperdub and everything like that, then this they they represent that collision of those worlds, and that's where I think it's really interesting. And I also think it feels like it's more it's allowed electronic music to grow up. I always, you know, we were talking about the hedonistic side of it earlier on the club culture, but I think part of the collateral that comes with that is that people regard it as hedonistic and isn't it isn't smart or intellectual or can have those ideas placed within it or used it. But, you know, people, you know, people like Code 9 allow, you know, a proof that are obviously proof that you can fuse those things. It is intelligent and people who are doing it are smart and the things that they're trying to do are really smart as well. So, you know, and there's, you know, there's so many cool things going on, um, you know, I work with some of the Outland people and obviously um, some of the more experimental, the supersonic stuff that's going on, mad festivals, and what John Doran's done with Weird Britain and some of those things that are electronic. I just think there's this just gone off. It's just gone off into fractals now. Completely. And, and I think in those Berlin are interesting. And, and, and um, you know, a lot of the, the kind of globalisation of electronic music, electronic music, you know, you've got these guys from Indonesia and from Shanghai and from Angola using quite extreme electronic production yeah. and stuff that can be blasted out of the speakers in Bergheim, yeah. but is also examining intellectual ideas and identity and all of those sort of things in, in ways that, you know, I don't think anyone foresaw No, and, and, Ber ago. and Berlin has been very significant in this because Berlin is kind of where a lot of those, you know, the Venn diagram overlaps in the sense that it's very much a, a centre of sound art. It's also a centre of club culture and places like Berg, you know, Bergheim, Funkhaus and all that are using those spaces for they're allowing those spaces to be used for interesting things and so that's just pushed that whole scene along so it's just shown so many possibilities so i don't know where it goes no, but the, I don't the, ch think, the challenge is to yeah. take it away from old white guys like yeah. us yeah exactly <laughs> and it's less scene based it's less sort of like oh i mean you know it's this type of sort of style or genre of music it's not that genre thing has kind of gone in some way so it's just and it's also become more ex about the experience of seeing that because as buying the record has gone, it's exp it's gone down to experiencing the sound and the music and the event. So that that's where those interesting sort of things overlap. And, and obviously Berlin has pushed a lot of those things. And it's, that's where a lot of the great lessons of the past in terms of... The, the experimental happenings that you would do in the 70s or sound system culture or rave culture, you know, they, they bring these lessons of that being there in the moment next to speaker stacks or next to the film presentation or yeah. whatever. Um, and, and they become still relevant. Um, I mean, I said I wanted to talk about the longevity of Sheffield. Like, people like Winston, Parrot are still making, like, music, the music of their lives. Mm. Um, is this what is it in the water in Sheffield that like gets people, you know, into their fifties and sixties making great electronic music? Um, I don't know because as soon as I always can continually think about some of the stuff that Parrot says, so because you know, <laughs> yeah, we talk about it like this way. But if Parrot was here, he goes, oh, it's all rubbish. It's fucking rubbish. Yeah, so it's all fucking dead, mate. You know about? But he can't stop doing it because he loves it and he's really good at it. And underneath it all, there's this massive passion and belief in what he does, and 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 I love that. And Winnie's obviously, you know, all over the place and still DJing and pipes and and, and everyone and obviously so. I, I I think it's also in part uh, that, you know, people, I think they're aware that there's respect for them. And I think there's, I think, I think it's nice that they still go, oh, okay, I can still do it. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, you know, Parrot's just done those brilliant mixes for Roche, for Rocheen, and he doesn't stop. So he's still, he's got it, basically. It's something they've got and you can't lose it. So, you know, it's... I mean, he doesn't really... That's the only thing. Parrot likes making music. He doesn't really play. I mean, Crooked Man stuff was brilliant, but, I mean, there's been no gigs. But he's also... I don't know. There's just something about those guys. I mean, Parrot's the only person I know. He's, I mean, all the singers that he finds, he finds them usually in the post office, you know. He, he, I'm, I'm not joking, you know. He's just got... You know, they've got they've got an ear for that, and it's something... And Mick Ward, obviously, and, and so... And Phil, who's the engineer. So they all... They just... 
they'll moan about it, but they can't stop doing it. You know, I think you've got to, you've got to put this into a Sheffield context. It's like it's not people jumping around really excited about what they're doing. They're just like, oh, I better bloody do this answer, really. You know, so it's there's a necessity to it, shall I say? I've, you I've know? spoken to Toddler T at some length <laughs> yeah. about this because obviously, you know, he is. I was like, going to say because Toddler's sort of made sure it's people like that have made made sure that its relevance is still there. Yeah, yeah, he's a true enthusiast. He's he's like trying to drag these. <laughs> guys out and they're just going right shit mate yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean do you feel because you know like you say your your newest solo album references that old house music and a bit of the Sheffield clang you know do you yeah. feel like that's kind of your folk culture almost oh it is yeah it's, I mean that's probably why I wanted to make that record because it's probably the time not I'm not saying this time I was most happy but at the time when I felt some of those all those things kind of aligned a little bit it was those weird sounds it was the sort of the fact that it, it wasn't tied to kind of proper music structures but it was also machinery it was also rhythmic it was all those things and I think there was a I think it was also that period I felt there was a naivety about about it that had the naivety of our early days when cabs were experimenting, but it was kind of able to work with boxes that made a little bit of sense of that naivety and that experimentation. So I think that's why I wanted to do that. And also for me, because I'm very, you know, obviously the voice is kind of significant for me and I always, you know, I've always used the voice. It's an instrument for me. So I, I feel that's, I feel that type of music is a way I can use my voice in a kind of sampley played way that doesn't compromise com compromise how I use the voice. I didn't without noticing, you know, without intentionally being noodly or oh, I'm going to be re I'm going to be a bit avant garde or experimental. I kind of captured those that I wanted to capture that vibe in a period that I felt was doing it, but had that you know had that groove to it. I want you know that's you know I. You know, I talked about we talked about my writing and pitch, but I mean, my you know my my research and everything I've written is about rhythm. I'm just fascinated by rhythm. I you know the stuff I've written is all about Chicago and about Detroit and about Dusseldorf and about Sheffield. So in some ways, that Umdada was kind of like a, a record of 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 what I'm into and what I've written about and what my research. So it it felt like a natural fit to do something within that kind of style, really. And and it leaps out. I mean, you know, it's it's a danceable record. It's, uh, you know, I, I very much, uh, you know, you can you can picture people dancing when you hear it. So you know, you. obviously, it's not a dry academic exercise. It's... No, I think you got. I, you know, I'm not daft, but I don't. I don't. I don't I, you know. But nobody wants to sort of hammer down sort of, you know, either an academic or an overtly intelligent thing. I mean, I don't. Th I think all the people I've mentioned, all the people I've talked about here and all the people I've known are incredibly smart and intelligent, perceptive and understanding people. But I don't think any of them will want to be seen as pretentious, nor would I. And I think there's a danger sometimes of being a little bit pretentious, a little bit smart ass. And so, I think there was that. That was it. It's like it's being clever, but not not being not being sort of uh, intentionally smart ass. Yeah, I mean, nothing nothing that Code Nine does would be would be worth the tinker's toss if he wasn't shelling down the rave on a regular. No, basis. that's it. I mean, he, this is it. I mean, he's making incredibly, you know, people like that making they're very clever people. And you know, the uh, proof is in the pudding. And, and, yeah, and they but they make you know amazing sounds. You know, so that's that's it. Yeah, totally. Um, and finally, I mean, have you got? You know, you don't plan massively ahead. Um, is, have you got? Have you got projects that you want to? You're looking forward to now. Um, well. I suppose my plate's a little bit... The thing is, my plate's a little bit... Not full, I'm saying, but, you know, we have got Creepshow and the Wrangler stuff, and I, I, I have to say, I mean, that's... I enjoyed working, doing the record, which I did with Benj, and massive shout-out and respect to Benj, but, I mean, I did... I wrote all the stuff, you know, originally all the... Everything was written just at home by by me, but I, it, the record was made with, you know, I made that, the Umdada, with Benj, and so... And I love working with those guys. It was great that he was supportive and, and sort of worked with me on, on, my, on this Umdada album. But the Wrangler album... I love working with I love working with Benjamin Phil and I love doing the creep show stuff because John's brilliant. Uh, yeah. 
uh, but I love working with those guys. So I, I'm re I mean, in the new Wrangler album situation is, I think all of us, I'd, I'd quite happily, if I never made another record again after a situation, even though I'm proud of everything I've done, the new Wrangler album is something I'm massively proud of. And it, I think it really kind of nails sort of so much of everything that we've done, where we are and everything. So I'm really happy with that. But I don't know, actually. I, the thing, <laughs> thing is, I was talking about this yesterday to someone. It's like, I don't say no to anything. I think I think it was I think it was Andy Weatherall said, somebody asked him why he kept doing stuff. And he went, well... You keep doing it because you're really worried that one day someone won't, someone won't ask you to do something. And I'm a little bit like that. So um, the next thing, I don't know what the next thing I'm going to do because I'm probably waiting for somebody to ask me to do it. And then I'll be really excited about it. But at the moment, I'm really excited about, you know, being able to do the Wrangler and, and do some more creep show. Well, I'm, I'm glad people are still asking. So uh, really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been well. super interesting. And um, yeah, good luck with whatever the next thing whatever is the next thing is and thank you very thank you very much for inviting me it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you awesome cheers